two weeks ago, we began a three-part series looking at major events that are centered around the end of time. Thank you very much, Steve. Okay. It's a good thing I've been reminded, every time I remind that down is up on this, so it's good to remember. And uh, we looked at the state of the dead. What happens when a person dies? The, the, the hope and comfort we have in recognizing that God loves our loved ones is letting them rest. Isn't that what the Bible says? Let them rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Well, a beautiful picture. And today we're going to be looking at what takes place, because uh, we ended up discussing a resurrection, what happens right after that first resurrection. And that'll be our focus. It's called the millennium. But before we get into that study, please, if you bow your heads with me. Father, as we study the book of Revelation and other parts of the Bible, I know they were written by you, and I pray that you would help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you know who this man is, please don't say. I'd like to tell you a little bit about him. His name was Alfred. Alfred was a pacifist and a writer of poetry. But Alfred was also a very gifted inventor. He invented one of the most incredible things in the world. At least he thought so, and many people at that time. It was dynamite. Dynamite, he invented as a pacifist and a poetry-loving man, was for the purpose of construction and civilian needs. He had no idea that it was going to be used so extensively in warfare, which was completely against his nature. About eight years before he died, his brother died. But the French newspaper thought that it was his death. And so as he woke up to get his morning cup of coffee and read the newspaper, Alfred read the obituary of himself instead of his brother. And the title of the obituary was this, The Merchant of Death is Dead. How would you feel as a pacifist to have this written about you? Not too good. Alfred did not either. And in his will, he had it set up this grand design to change the way people viewed the family name, Alfred Nobel. So the Nobel Peace Prize was to kind of cover up a few things that were a little shady in the past. You know, there is another person who has no shady past but has been misunderstood for centuries, millennia, and that is our Heavenly Father. And there is going to be a time, the Bible tells us, he doesn't use this word, but I will explain it this way, and as we get into it, we'll see. Where God is going to have a, a chance to let us see his character in his true light. His character will be vindicated. So I believe that time, we'll see as we study right now, the millennium. The word millennium is not found in the Bible. Uh, actually, it is taken from two Latin words, I believe, meaning 1,000 years. And the concept of a thousand years we do see in the Bible. We're going to be looking at several parts of the Bible today, but our focus will be in Revelation chapter 20. There are three millennial views. For those of you who would like to get a little bit of boring theological background, I'll give it to you for about 
one or two minutes, and then we'll go on to our study. There are the premillennialists, the postmillennialists, and the amillennialists. The premillennialists believe that Jesus will come before the millennium. The postmillennialists believe that Jesus will come after the millennium. And the amillennialist says, there isn't a millennium, and if there is, we're living in it already. So that's kind of the three main views. Um, I always get interested when I hear people talk about the millennium because they always categorize this, hey, I'm a premillennialist or I'm a postmillennialist. Well, I'd like to say something different. I am a Bibleennialist, I think. Someone who believes whatever the Bible says about the millennium. Amen? Well, just let the Bible speak for itself. There's questions that are oftentimes asked. What happens when Christ comes? What is the condition of the earth when Jesus comes? What happens to Satan? Because these are all questions that are built around this, this picture of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, when does God make the earth new? And is there anyone alive on the earth during the 1,000 years? We're going to go through that. And um, it's, it, it could be dry theology if it didn't have Jesus in the middle of it. So we're going to see one of the most beautiful pictures, I believe, of a kind and loving God as we go into this study. So if you're with me, we'll open up our Bibles. Our first question is this, what takes place at Jesus' coming? We've already looked at this, but I'd like to touch on it again. What takes place at Jesus' coming? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, 7. This is, uh, I love the book of Revelation because it says two things. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's going to tell us of the things that are going to be around his appearing. So Revelation 1-7 tells us this. Behold, he, speaking of Jesus, comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. So when Jesus comes, how many people will see him? Every eye, the Bible says, will see Jesus when he comes. First Thessalonians, Paul comments on the same time period. And here's what he says at 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with what? A shout and with the? So every eye is going to see him, and then there's going to be this tremendous music. I've often said noise, but I like to say music. Is that fair? Can you imagine the joyful, triumphant sound of angels putting together an angel choir saying, it's done. It's done. We have something special to sing about. I'm looking forward to hearing that. It says, with the trump of God is also there. And then the Bible says, when every eye sees him and everyone hears him, then something will take place. The dead in Christ will rise first. As soon as I see that phrase, rise first, it reminds me, if someone is rising first, then there must be those who are rising later, right? Biblically speaking, there are two resurrections. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 5 and verse 28 and 29. He said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves, how many, will come forth hear his voice, excuse me, shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Two resurrections, the Bible says. One for those that are gods, those who, you know, anytime it says those that have done good, I always, I used to think that was me. And then I realized quickly that I can't do good. And then I realized, well, I'm going to be in the other resurrection. 
And then I realize that I have a savior. A savior who says, I'm gonna give you my goodness, Chuck, so you can be part of the first resurrection. And not only does he give it to me once, he's willing to live his goodness in me. I know you know this, but I'll say it again. Any goodness you see in me has nothing to do with Charles Kenneth Holtry II. Now, my mom put that great handle on me. Don't you love it? But if you see goodness in me, it's a praise God. Amen? Amen? And so here it is. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm not scared at this time, and that is the reason why. And here's our memory text. If there's a first resurrection, the second, when is the first? Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. First of all, thank you, Grace, for reading that. Appreciate, always enjoy having my daughter here. When you look at this, the first resurrection takes place and those who are resurrected reign with Christ for a thousand years. So now my question is, when is the thousand years? It's after the first resurrection. It's simple, because the first resurrection, those that are resurrected are the ones who reigned for a thousand years. So it has to be after the first resurrection. And that first resurrection takes place at Jesus' second coming. So this kind of gives us a, a starting point, if you will, for the millennium. There it is. You have your thousand years. First resurrection marks the beginning of the millennium. The Bible then describes this, and I like how it continues. Then we which are alive, because this is happening the same time as a resurrection. Then we which are alive remain shall stay here on the earth. What does it say? shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So there's a very clear statement, right? Where at? In the clouds. And then it says this, to meet the Lord where? In the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So there's this picture at the second coming of God's people joining with those who are resurrected. Together they're joining and meeting God in the air. It's put this way in John chapter 14, Jesus said this, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, does that mean he's going to prepare it here or there? Up there. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where you are, there I may be also. And I read it wrong again, didn't I? The reason I'm doing that is because the Bible's so crystal clear. And we have to turn the words around if you wanted to read something different. It says, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus isn't coming at, at, at the beginning of a thousand years to live with us. We're going to live with him. There will be a time when he comes to live with us, but not at this point. And I think that's a, a key as we're looking at it. The righteous, praise God, go to heaven. Um, talk about a sabbatical. Vacation. A thousand-year honeymoon. 
I don't know how you want to look at it. You know why I use the word honeymoon before you think it's weird, right? Revelation, it says God looks at the holy city coming down as a bride. So you just kind of have, have this wedding picture that comes together. Revelation chapter 14, it's like a husband leaving and building a place and coming back for his bride. So this is the picture that we have here. A thousand years to be with God in heaven. Then it says this, um, what about the lost? You might be familiar with this passage. It's found in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, this, this verse here, is at the end of the seals, just before the seventh seal, at the end of the sixth seal. And this is dealing with Jesus' second coming. Revelation chapter 6, and starting with verse 14. Revelation 6, verse 14 It says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Can you imagine this? This is the whole earth shaking, this picture. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men. Well, it just starts to tell us that those who are in charge, sometimes we get nervous about the people who are in charge. The news is about the people who are in charge. And this is describing what's happening to the people in charge. Then it says, and every slave and every free man, making it crystal clear, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. Why would you do it? Well, I guess that makes sense. The earth's falling apart. The mountains are shaking. Everything is going crazy. I'm going to hide too. But that's not why they're hiding. It goes on and says, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and what? Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Really, I can understand hiding because the world's falling apart. But hiding from the Lamb? I mean, the anger of a Lamb, I don't know if any of you have seen an angry Lamb, that's just not something to be worried about. If it said the wrath of the lion of the tribe of Judah, I could understand. It's almost like it's being described here in such a way to make us realize how ridiculous it is. Does it make sense? That anyone would hide from someone who loves them doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Especially someone who gave his life for you. The first entrance of the first mention of the word lamb in Revelation is the first, the next, the previous chapter. It's a lamb slain for us. It's a beautiful picture. And then it finishes up with this For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? This is what is happening to the wicked. They're saying, Hide us. And the righteous are saying, Lo, we have waited for him and he will save us. The two pictures we see taking place at the second coming. So the millennium. At the beginning of the thousand years, we have the first resurrection. We also have the second coming. Connected with the second coming, the saints go to heaven, and the wicked are slain. And then the wicked who are dead, they weren't resurrected, so they're still in the graves. That's the picture we have. So what's the condition of the earth during the thousand years? Let's take a look at it, right? I think these are, you're saying it, right? Desolate, it looks terrible. How do we know that? Well, we're going to see at the second coming, something happens to the earth. We already got the hint of it from Revelation 6, right? The mountains are shaking. 
What else do we see taking place? I'm, I like to, um, this is taken from the seven seals. It's not seven seals, sorry. The seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. The seven last plagues. Revelation chapter 16, starting with verse 17. How many plagues? Um, I know there's something on the screen. I'm going I'm to talk about something that's still on the screen. How many plagues? took place in Egypt. Ten. Okay. Uh, now, of those ten plagues, do you remember what the first plague was? I need someone to study this. Yes, Landon. Blood. That's right. Water turned to blood. Thank you, sir. And then we have frogs, right? It's interesting to note that the first plague and the second plague and the third plague fell on everybody. Listen carefully. But the seven last plagues in Egypt only fell on those who were rejecting God. His people were protected during the last seven plagues in Egypt. In the end of time, God doesn't pour out 10 plagues, only seven. And his people are protected during those seven. What a beautiful picture. Um, all right. And the seventh angel poured out his veil in the air, and there came a great voice saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Christy and I were just re reminiscing about our first earthquake that we felt in California. Uh, we, uh, it felt like a large truck was just driving. We, we lived on a campus, and sometimes delivery trucks would go by. If they're really heavy, you could feel a little bit of a shake. It was a little bit like a really heavy truck going by. And we realized, uh, did some checking on the news, that we had experienced an earthquake. But this is not a light, you know, earthquake in the base of the Sierra Nevadas. This is something much bigger. In fact, notice what it says. I think it, it describes it. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations, what? We're looking at a, a very dramatic, cataclysmic event that's taking place, the Bible says, in the end of time. And remember, God's people are safe during this time. And then it goes, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Most of you know that islands are actually the top of mountains. That's right. So if the mountain goes away, the island's also going away, right? Um, so someone, anyhow, we won't, we won't, if it was in a class, I would think about what happens to Hawaii, but we don't have time to do that. And then it goes on, it says this, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Uh, talent, People argue about the weight, but it's somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds. So this is hail that's weighing between 50 and 70 pounds apiece. So I can, can you imagine hail like bowling balls? Now imagine something four times heavier. So that's just a, a, a picture. Would that create destruction? Absolutely, absolute destruction. Again, are God's people safe during this time? Absolutely. Because they're good? Because God is good, right? So yes, there's this safety during this time. 
This is something unlike anything we can imagine. Um, I've seen some devastation. Some of you on the news have seen some effects of bombing, am I right? What's taking place in, in the Middle East right now? If any of you have uh, looked at pictures of World War II and looked at what London looked like after days in and days out of, of German bombing, crazy. But this is beyond anything we can imagine. Um, this is a picture of what the earth would look like. Now, if the wicked die when Jesus comes and the righteous go to heaven, the wicked dead remain in their grave, is there anyone left to rebuild anything? No, so this is, this is what it's going to look like during the thousand years because God's people are in heaven and the wicked are dead. So what's happening is kind of a desolate landscape. Isaiah 24 uh, describes this. And the reason we connect with Isaiah 24 is because it, it talks about some other things here that are connected with Revelation 20. One person said more than half the verses in the book of Revelation are from the Old Testament. And we can clearly see that here in Isaiah 24. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. And I'm not sure what they're talking about at this point until I read the next verses, right? See the context. It says, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it. If any of you have seen a drunk person, and don't tell me if you've been drunk yourself, but you know what it looks like. And they're saying the earth is going to look like that. And then it goes on and says this. It shall fall, it shall not rise again, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish who? The hosts of the high ones that are on high. A punishment of the people on high or the high ones on high? and the kings of the earth upon the earth, and they shall be gathered together as prisoners, where? In the pit. Interesting, the hosts of the high ones are gonna be punished the same times the kings of the earth are gonna be punished. And they're gonna be gathered together like they're in a pit. If any of you read Revelation 20, this is really sounding like Revelation 20. And then it says this, and they shall be shut up in the prison, that is that pit, and after many days shall be visited. This is almost a direct allusion in Revelation chapter 20. And then it says, the slain of the earth shall be, sorry for the picture, shall be from one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. How come? Because no one's alive to do it. That's the picture we have. So what happens to Satan when Jesus returns? Let's go to the place of the millennium study. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 tells us what happens to Satan when Jesus returns. This is good news. I love, okay, there we go. I saw an angel come down from where? Heaven, having the key to what? The bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Then it goes and says this, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him, how long? A thousand years. So we have the righteous in heaven living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And now I have Satan who's going to be bound in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Actually, I got ahead of myself. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. And then it goes on 
till the thousand years should be fulfilled. After that, he must be loose for a little season. Sounds like Isaiah 24. You're going to be in a prit. You're going to be in prison for a, thousand, for, for a time. And then you'll be loosed for a little season. Here it says uh, the same thing or very similar. A few questions. What is the bottomless pit? Uh, I, I got out my Greek New Testament this morning just to make sure I wasn't only reading English for the sake of those who like Greek. And the word for bottomless pit, that's translated bottomless pit, is abusos. In fact, the word bottomless pit used throughout Revelation is always from the word abusos. Uh, the word abusos is translated in the Gospels twice as the deep. Okay, so it's not meaning uh, a place without a bottom. You're falling for the ceaseless, like for a thousand years, you just free fall. That's not what it's talking about. It's describing a place, right? Um, this word, a bottomless pit, abusos, is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word abusos is used to describe the earth before creation, without form and void. So again, um, something that as you study, you can see. So uh, Jeremiah 4.23 in that light says, I beheld the earth, men lo, was without form and void. And the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. So when there is this time of everything being destroyed at Jesus' second coming, and all of God's people being removed. It's interesting to note the Bible describes it as abusos, without form and void. So when we have Satan being thrown into a abusos, it's this completely destroyed, devastated, reeling like a drunkard earth at Jesus' second coming. All right? Kind of gives you a picture. Again, we're looking in symbols, right? The Bible was written, uh, not Bible, the book of Revelations predominantly is written in symbols, right? The Bible says that John signified it. So what is the bottomless pit? It's a symbol of prison on this earth. So what are the chains? The chains are also a symbol. It's a chain of circumstances. He can't get out. Is it literal chains? You remember the two demoniacs? Jesus went up to the two demoniacs after he crossed the lake in a stormy night. The two demoniacs come running up to him, and they have broken chains off their wrist. Chains were not used to hold down demons, right? However, God can say, this is where you can go and no further, and that is like being chained to this planet. There's nothing they can do. And think about it. Satan, what is Satan's job? To kill, to destroy, right? To deceive. I mean, we go through the, the jobs of Satan. Well, if you have no one to kill, no one to destroy, no one to deceive, I would say you're tied up, right? There's nothing you can do. If your main job is doing something, you're no longer, you know, you've heard someone say, um, could you help me with this on Sunday morning? I love to, brother. My hands are tied. Everyone knows your hands aren't tied, but it's a symbol saying I can't make it, right? Circumstances forbid me. And this is something that we're seeing here with Satan. 
So what will God's people be doing in heaven for a thousand years? And this is kind of a place that we just take a little bit of time to focus because it doesn't make sense, in my opinion. And I'm glad, so, so glad that God's not like me. I'm sure you are too. What will God's people be doing in heaven for a thousand years? Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, excuse me, and they sat upon them, and what was that next word? And judgment was given unto them. I always struggle a little bit with this. Judgment given unto them. This is talking about God's people, but we'll, we'll keep reading. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. There will be people who've given the ultimate sacrifice for God who will be in heaven. It goes on and says this, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Living with Christ a thousand years? I like that. Reigning with Christ a thousand years? I'm not quite sure how that works. Judgment? See, I, I could be honest. I often don't like who I am. Maybe some of you feel that way. Maybe you like the way you are. I don't know. But I look and I say, Chuck, you've got some issues. Praise God, we have a God in heaven who is merciful. And to think about me reigning with God, something's not right about that picture. You know, sometimes we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're good enough to rule it over other people. But heaven? Come on. And then it says judgment. You know, judgment, the Bible is crystal clear. There is one judge. Who is that? Jesus. We would say God the Father, but remember what Jesus says? God gave all judgment to the Son, which is also good news because he's my high priest and he's my lawyer. So I'm in good shape. Now, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Of course, the context of this is don't take your brothers and sisters to court. Amen? And then it goes on and says this. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? Paul knew something. John was telling us in Revelation, and I'm sitting here saying, whoa, me judge angels? What does that mean? If Jesus is the judge, what do we have to do with judgment? You know, um, you know that the wicked angels will be on this planet and the righteous humans will be in heaven. And so we're part of the judgment and part of the discussion may be the wicked angels. Now, there's two elements I'd like to talk, talk about very quickly. Mm, take a little bit of time. There's several elements of a court case. Uh, everyone's familiar. You have a hearing. After the hearing, you have a verdict that is given. You are not guilty. Good. But they could say guilty. And if there is guilty, you have a sentencing, right? You are sentenced to um, 60 hours of community service, whatever it may be. 
sometimes, based upon the circumstances, uh, you may have something that's between, let's call it a sentencing hearing. Those who have been hurt by whatever took place give a little bit of a hearing of how they've been affected about it before the sentencing takes place. In heaven, we here have been hurt by the work of Satan and his minions. Am I right? Sometimes we haven't been given a moment's break. Temptation after temptation, disaster after disaster, world falls apart. Crazy. We've been able to say to the universe, I went through what they did. I can tell you what it's like. We have something to share that no one else has to share. Not that we want to share it, but it's the reality of the lives we face here on this planet. There's another thing that I believe is part of that time, and that is you and I are going to have a chance to have some questions answered. Why, God? We've asked this question. We looked at a couple of sermons on this earlier this year. Why, God? Some people, does it make sense that my loved one passed away? Why? It doesn't make sense that I'm going through this pain. Why? Why do some people have nothing and other people have everything? Why? These are questions that have crossed most of our minds. I could probably say all of our minds, but I want to be generous because I don't know who hasn't thought it. But the reality is we have burdens and we don't know why. And sometimes, you know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13? We're seeing through a glass darkly, right? We don't really see what's going on behind the scenes. All we can see is so-and-so is hurt right now and that's not right. But we don't know the whys. We don't know what God is doing. And God is going to give us an opportunity to see behind the scenes. God, why? Why did that happen? Well, my child, let me just share something with you. I did this. I sent angels to do this. My Holy Spirit was speaking at this time. This was taking place. And this is the decision that was made based upon everything that I could do. The one thing I can't do, child, is force someone's choice. But I can love them. And here's where my love was shown. Can you imagine? Does God have to do that? He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He can say what he wants to say, do what he wants, because he's righteous and true at all times. But he takes it so that you and I can challenge and see, and his love will be vindicated. You know, there's a song several years ago, a friend of ours sang it here. Trust his heart. Sometimes we can't trace God's hand. Sometimes we can't see his plan. But one thing we can do is trust his heart. Our God loves us. And here, we will be able to see really why. I don't want to, but I can't wait.
I know my God is righteous and true and all loving, but for him to share with me will mean the world. To say, here's what has happened. On the millennium, we can see on the front side, at the beginning, during the thousand years, Satan will be bound. Saints, there will be heaven doing a work of judgment, and the earth will remain desolate. Now let's look at the events at the end as we close. What events happen after the millennium? So I started out with the beginning. We've worked our through to what's going during. How does the millennium end according to the Bible? Let's see what it says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. At the beginning of the millennium, we go to be with God. At the end of the millennium, God is going to come down to be with us. Beautiful. It's like we're taken away for a thousand years to just enjoy, but actually work the work of judgment. You know, there's something interesting. Uh, first time I was preaching, or second time I was preaching on this subject, there was a senior pastor who was listening to me preach. And uh, he was a very gracious man. He invited me over to his house. He and his wife were sitting there. Christina and I were sitting. And he said, so Chuck, um, when does God wipe all tears from their eyes? I said, oh, at his second coming. He said, that's not what the Bible says, Chuck. Oh, I was like, oh, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, it does. And I got my Bible and I started turning to it. And I realized that's not what the Bible says. The tears are not wiped away at the second coming. They're wiped away at the end of the millennium. I do believe that even during the millennium, as we see what's taking place on this planet, there will be tears. But we will come out of the millennium with our minds solidified for eternity that God is just and true and his works were done the best that even the infinite God can do. What a, what, a, what a picture, right? It says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Uh, what, a, what a picture of God coming down to be with us. But let me look at the verse I was actually after. I didn't know that's were Revelation 20, verse 5. And it says, And the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Wait a minute. At the beginning of the millennium, there is a resurrection of the righteous, those that are God's. At the end, it says the rest of the dead live not again until, so that means at the end, they are resurrected. Simply put, there is the resurrection of damnation at the end. The beginning, first resurrection. The end, the second resurrection. The millennium has a resurrection on either side. That is uh, how it's bound together. There in Revelation chapter 20. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be what? <laughs> Loose out of his prison. So remember, he's bound for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, there's a resurrection of the wicked. And Satan is loosed. Do you notice how those two are connected? Now he's no longer in prison because he has someone he can tempt, destroy, deceive, He's now back in his element. I got everything the way I want it. 
Satan's joy comes with our misery. And so there is now joy and newfound freedom for Satan. It's interesting how it's described here. He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog. These are ancient enemies of God's people. Um, to gather them together to what? Battle. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So he's, he's what, what deception specifically is Satan using at this time? He's deceiving them to do what? To battle. To fight against what? Let's look and see. You know what? It's, it, we skip ahead for a few verses to describe this scene, and we're going to come back. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. For a thousand years, God's people have been able to question why. And now their questions are answered. And so in the judgment, as God is about to pronounce judgment out of the books on those that are wicked, those that are righteous can say, I've already seen the facts I know it's true. Do you realize the judgment on the wicked, the public pronouncement, doesn't take place till after God's people spend a thousand years with him? What a, what, a, what a picture of the kind of God we serve. And they went up. This is the picture I went up before, after he deceives them to go to battle. They went up in the breath of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. Who are they attacking? This is why I have the Jerusalem coming down. That's what we looked at from Revelation 21. You can't surround the camp of the saints if the camp of the saints isn't there, right? So it's like millennium is like a puzzle. We put these pieces together. Here they are, the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and they are about to attack it. Do you know what the, you know what the new Jerusalem looks like? It is massive. The size of Oregon Square. Now, I don't know quite how that works. That means they have more than 100 floors in the apartment buildings. I mean, we're looking at a massive, massive building. A massive, not building, excuse me, city. The, the walls are made out of jasper, right? Clear as crystal. Then you have the foundation of 12 different precious metals. The streets are out of gold. This is the picture. You can see through the walls, which I found fascinating. Um, it's called transparency. We don't have it in our culture, but heaven has it. Absolute, genuine transparency. And so here is this picture. As they go to battle, the Bible says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They have been shown, here is where you're at. Here's the choice. And they're going to say, that's right, and we're going to get you. It's that final move, that final act of defiance to show I would not change even though I've got everything in front of me. Aren't you glad that God knows the heart?
And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Our planet will be the lake of fire all around a city that will be safe. You know, in our culture today, cities aren't safe. At least many of the main cities that I know. You go to the countryside and have people say, you know what, I can leave my doors unlocked. I don't have to worry about locking my car. But in the city, you've got to be a little bit more careful. And there's a reason why. You know why? Because cities are concentrations of people. And people, by and large, are sinful. So you have a concentration of sin. But in heaven, it's also a concentration of people, but everyone there will be loving. That's right, saved, loving. And so you're going to have a concentration. I have a feeling that cities are going to be the best place to be. And this goes against my thinking because I'm a country boy. But cities are going to be the place to be because it'll be a concentration of the love of God and of loving Christians. What a, what a picture we have. So Nahum chapter 1 verse 9. This Old Testament prophet is speaking here, speaking specifically to God's enemy, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, right? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. But it says something in Nahum 1 verse 9. Why do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Yes, he's talking about Assyria, but when I look at this, I believe that oftentimes the prophets wrote for a bigger picture at the end of time. There will come a time when affliction will not rise a second time. There will be no yin and yang. There'll be no balance of good and evil throughout the universe for the rest of time. That will not happen. When God comes and sin is destroyed, there'll be perfect righteousness throughout the universe forever. That is the picture the Bible gives us of this time. After the fire goes out, what will God do for his people? Can you imagine being inside the holy city? Listening to the angels singing, watching the court of God, and then it says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. How do you get a new heaven and a new earth? The same way we got the first one. I, I, I didn't see the first one, obviously. I came 6,000 years too late. And Adam and Eve came a few hours too late. So no human seen this. But standing there, hearing God say, let there be, whoosh, there it is. Beauty beyond our wildest imagination over top of the now clean earth. Let there be. And there it is, our millennium. 1,000 years. At the end of the millennium, Satan will be loosed for a season. The new Jerusalem will descend. There will be a second resurrection. The, the uh, second death will come after the fire destroys the wicked, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. In May of 1960, there was a tsunami that was reported to be headed towards Hawaii. And as it was going towards Hilo, they were told it will be here in a few hours. The tsunami 
35-foot-high wall of water moving at the speed of a jet plane was a few hours out from Hilo. And you know what? People were told, get out of the lower district. Get up from the wharf. Get up, and you know Hawaii is mountainous. If any of you have been there, you can get out of the way. Get out of the way. And so they, people were trying to get out of the way, but there were some people, a couple score, 60 plus, said, we've had warnings before. Let's go check it out. So they went down to the beach, saw the water receding out, watched the natural phenomena. It was the last thing they saw. 60 people lost their lives who never needed to. Crystal clear, here's what's going to happen. What are you going to do with it? You know, in the Bible, God also tells us, here's what's going to happen. And the question for us today is the same thing. What are we going to do with it? Here's the picture uh, after that wave went through. You can see that there's nothing in some of those sections in that street. There actually should have been things right next to the water line there. Complete devastation, all gone. Was it known? Yes. Today, you and I have been told in the Bible very clearly what's going to happen in the future. We see it. The hardest time is going to be on the inside of the city looking out, recognizing there might be people out there who I wish were inside. It's after that that God wipes away all tears. But God will create a new heaven and new earth. The Bible says, wherein dwells righteousness. Very soon, I don't know how soon, but I'm looking at the world that's around me and I realize it can't be too much longer. Jesus is coming back. Take the time not to run to him out of fear because you can't do anything to save yourself anyhow. But go to him. Get to know him. He loves you. Accept the gift that he's given for you and say, I'm on your side, God. I want to be used by you to get as many people as possible to be with me. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I praise you so much that you have given us clear understanding from the Bible. I thank you, Father, that we've given us prophecy so we can look forward and know there's a God who's in charge. And thank you for the Gospels, for us to know how we can be safe in the love and righteousness of Christ. Please be with us now. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.